turn there, Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 12, and we're going to talk about something uh, very specific today. We're going to talk about prayer. Now, when I bring that up, usually we think of prayer as a point of guilt, right? We're embarrassed. We're, if I ask you, how is your, uh, uh, how's your Bible study going? You may say, oh, I, it's incredible. I'm, I'm really hearing from God. I'm, I'm really enjoying this study. I may ask how worship is going. Oh, it's, it's amazing. It's, how's your prayer life? And everybody shuts up. Because it, it, somehow it's become a point of, of embarrassment or shame for us. And it should be rejoicing and praising for us. Now, so as we talk about prayer today, I want you to notice the differences between what we have in our minds as prayer and what the prayer we see here. I want you to see the differences. There's a lot of historical stuff we're going to talk about today. There's a lot of, uh, of, of parts of this study that, that are hopefully by the end of this, you will see that, that prayer is not something to be afraid of. It's not something to be embarrassed about. It's not something to, to have guilt over. Prayer, prayer is an incredible privilege for the Christian. So let's read Acts chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 12 and go through to 22. And it is up here behind me. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. When they arrived, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. They were all continually united in prayer along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers and sisters. The number of people who were together was about 120. And he said, brothers and sisters, it was necessary that the scripture be fulfilled, that the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David foretold about Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was one of our number and shared in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with his unrighteous wages. He fell head first. His body burst open and his intestines spilled out. Quite a picture, isn't it? This became known to all the residents of Jerusalem so that in their own language the field is, is called Hakeldama, that is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling become desolate, let no one live in it, and let someone else take his position. Therefore, from among the men who have accompanied us during the whole time Jesus went in and out among us, among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, from among these it is necessary that one become a witness with us of his resurrection. So let's, uh, let's kind of work our way through this. There's a lot here. First, let's look at the context. Because the context is important mostly because it tells us in verse 12 that they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives uh, means, what that means is that their discussion with Jesus that we saw last week happens on the Mount of Olives. That it means that Jesus ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olives. 
Why is that important? Well, the, 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 the Mount of Olives has a rich biblical history. It, it's the place where, where King David fled. He went to the Mount of Olives when Absalom rebelled against him and against God. When Solomon rebelled against God, he built pagan temples to please one of his wives on the Mount of Olives. Probably a, a whole new sermon right there, but... When, when Ezekiel had his vision of the glory of God rising out of Jerusalem, it went to, the, the, that glory of God went to the Mount of Olives. Zechariah prophesied that, the, that he saw the Lord of hosts standing on the Mount of Olives. Now this is probably Jesus' return, his second coming. And it makes sense because remember what the, the angels told the disciples that were gathered there. They were standing around looking up and, he said, and the angels told them, why are you standing around looking up? He's going to come back the way you see him going. So it's probably where Jesus will come back is the Mount of Olives. Jesus spent a lot of time on the Mount of Olives. He, 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 went, he, he left from there to go into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He, he gave what's, what's often called the Olivet Discourse, which is his, when he talked to the disciples about when he was going to return and what the world was going to be like when he returned, uh, his second coming, he talked about that from the Mount of Olives. The prayer that he had the, the night before he was arrested and betrayed was at the Mount of Olives. And there, there's a lot more there, but just that, that gives you kind of an overview the Mount of Olives is incredibly important in the theology of Judaism and, and, and Christianity. And, and so it's probably where most believe that when Jesus comes again for the second coming, it will be there. It will be at the Mount of Olives. So he, remember, Jesus told them to wait here, and so they return to Jerusalem and they pray. Uh, I think there's a couple of important points here. Remember, these are guys of action. We talked last week about how, how these guys didn't understand the wait here thing. We don't understand the wait here thing very well, do we? We don't do that well. They didn't either. They were men of action. They were told by Jesus that the Holy Spirit's going to come on you and you are going to be empowered to be my witnesses through Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So they have this, this huge ministry ahead of them. But what do they do? They are obedient to Jesus. They return to Jerusalem, as he told them to do, and they spend that time in prayer. Now, I think that's important, because what do we do when we get excited about a new ministry? We start making plans. We start making decisions. We start, these guys, you would expect them, okay, you got Jerusalem, you got Judea, you got Samaria. They would start making all these decisions, all these plans. That's not what they do. They pray. They stop in a room and pray. Now, it says this, this room was a Sabbath day journey from the Mount of Olives. And that's also kind of interesting. A Sabbath's day journey 
is 2,000 cubits. The, the Pharisees had decided you could travel 2,000 cubits on the Sabbath day, and that would mean at, at, at that point you have not broken the law of working on the Sabbath. You can go 2,000 cubits. And the background of that, the, the, the rabbis and, and, and in their writings, they believed that that was the distance that the, the people in the Exodus had to travel to the tent of meeting. Then in Joshua, it actually says that that's the, the distance that Noah and his family traveled to board the ark from their tents, 2,000 cubits, to, the, to board the ark. So even this Sabbath day journey has some theological meaning. It has some connection going all the way back through the Exodus to Noah. Now, 2,000 cubits is about 1,000 yards, just uh, for our purposes, because we don't, we don't count cubits anymore. And what do they do when they get there? They pray. They don't make plans. They don't decide who's going to go where. They don't start making decisions on who's going to do what in this new ministry they're about to, to take on. They pray. They spend this time in prayer. And it specifically says that they were continually united in prayer. That, that idea, con continually united, is sometimes it's with one mind or, or in one accord, that kind of idea. It's an idiom that says that they were all on the same page and praying. Now, I want you to, to think about this because they did not yet have the Holy Spirit, did they? Holy Spirit hasn't come. So that means that there was not the Spirit of God within them to connect up their prayer. That means they had to discuss it. They probably had a discussion and said, okay, we have these decisions to make, and so let's focus our prayer on these decisions, these plans that need made. They had to, they had to talk that through because they didn't have the Holy Spirit like we have today to guide our prayers together. They had to, to, to focus on that. Too often our prayers today, um, it's been jokingly called an organ recital, you know, because we're praying for this guy's heart and that lady's liver and, and this person's kidneys. So it, it's called an organ recital. Too often that's, that takes up our prayer life. I want you to notice what they do. They focus. They focused on, what, on the task ahead. They knew, they'd been told, you are going to be my witnesses. You are going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, and you are going to be my witnesses. And so they focused on that. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray for his heart and her kidneys, and I'm not saying that. Those are important prayers as well. But sometimes we need to focus. Sometimes our prayers need to be focused on what's next. What does this ministry look like next? What does our family look like next? Sometimes we need focused prayer like this. Now, notice also that they're gathered together praying. And it even says that the women were there. Now, this is an important detail because in this culture, women are property. Remember, women can't even go in the temple. There's a court of women outside. 
That's as close as they get. Now, in Christianity, they're equals. In Christianity, men and women are equals and are praying together for this ministry that's about to happen, for these decisions that, are, that, that need to be made. And they, they, he starts talking about Judas. Judas is also an interesting study. We know that G- Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. It, it tells us that in the Gospels. Zechariah, the prophet, in, in chapter 11, verse 13 of Zechariah, he says exactly that, 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 that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. And so you see actually him talk, Peter talking about this, how Scripture is fulfilled in Judas. And we have Psalm 41 and Zechariah both say that, that, that there would be someone that, that betrays Jesus. And then Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, which are quoted here, tell them what to do to replace Judas. So we have all of this scripture coming together, all of this Old Testament coming together. Matthew's, Matthew's gospel tells us that, that Judas took the money back. The chief priests and scribes, they bought a potter's field with that money. Now, a potter's field is where unclaimed people are buried. If, if no one claims the body, then it's buried in a potter's field. We still have those today, in, in America even. So this potter's field is, is, is bought. And in Matthew's gospel, it says that Judas went and hung himself. Now, here we get a little more gory detail, don't we? We see that, that, uh, that Judas actually, I don't know if the rope breaks or exactly what happens, but he falls and bursts open. Great picture. Bursts open, and so they now call it the field of blood, and it's still today called the field of blood. So you see all of this scripture coming together, even in the one that betrayed Jesus. You see all this scripture coming together, and Peter points all this out. And so what they need to do now is choose a new apostle. So they, they begin the process of choosing a new apostle to replace Judas. Judas gave up his position as an apostle, and so he needs to be replaced. Now look at the qualifications. They're in verse 21. It says that, that, that this person must have accompanied us the whole time, been with Jesus and the disciples, since John baptized Jesus all the way to the end, and must be a witness of his resurrection. So they're going to replace this guy from, with somebody that's been with them the whole time. We, we can kind of get the idea in reading the Gospels that it's just Jesus and these 12 guys. But clearly it's not. Because they have choices here of others that have been with them the whole time. So we have that they're, they're about to make this decision. And it's the only time this decision will ever be made. Because from here on, no one will meet these qualifications. So, for instance, when James, almost all of the apostles are martyred for their faith, when James, I think it's in Acts 12, James is the first to be martyred, they don't have one of these councils, they don't put this together and, and choose a replacement for him. Because they're running out of people who have been with Jesus the whole time and are witnesses to the resurrection. So 
This is the only time they will ever meet to replace an apostle. From here, when they die, they're just gone. The second thing that, that, that they do here that they will never do again is they cast lots for, for who the next one should be. We see that a lot in the Old Testament, the casting lots thing. And it's, it, it's basically a handful of sticks or, or rocks or stones with letters or symbols on them. And so they pray, and then they toss this and, and read the symbols or, or letters to see what God's will is. This will never be done again. Never again in the New Testament will they cast lots. Why? Because we have the Holy Spirit. We don't need to toss stones and sticks to know the will of God. We have the Holy Spirit. You know, uh, Henry Blackaby, in his, uh, in his study, Experiencing God, he said that there were four ways, four main ways that we really hear from God, that we really connect with God. The first one is in prayer. The second one is in the Word of God. The third one is other godly people speaking into our lives. And the fourth one is circumstances. Now, I personally believe that circumstances are the least reliable. And here's why. Because I think we can mis misinterpret circumstances the easiest. I think if we're, if we're judging on circumstances, then we need to, to back up and, and get a second opinion, sort of, from prayer or the Word or from other godly people. Circumstances for us are kind of like casting lots were for them. And so we need, we need to hear from God more clearly, and we can because of the Holy Spirit. Now, I would add to, to Blackaby's list, I would add worship to that. Prayer, his word, other godly people, circumstances, and worship. Because I think we hear from God in worship. I think we, we can get direction from God in worship. So how does this look, look for our prayer life? Well, I think the first thing that this passage tells us is that it's not about how much time we spend in prayer. It's not even about the words we say. Neither of those are recorded here, are they? We don't know how long they prayed. We don't know what words they prayed. So it's not about time, and it's not about the words you use. What they had is focus. Our prayer life needs to focus Yes, we need to, to pray for the health of others. Yes, we need to pray for these things uh, that, that are going on in other people's lives. But when we need a decision, we need to pray. And we need to focus that prayer on that decision. We need to look for the answer in his word, in prayer, in, in other godly people, in circumstances, in in worship, we need to, to, to look for the answer because we're focused. The second thing I, I think we should notice is that the disciples clearly pray expecting an answer. They got the sticks and stones ready to go, you know? They're expecting an answer. There isn't a, I hope God answers this prayer. There isn't a, I wish God would answer this prayer. They expect an answer from God. 
because they're ready to make a decision. So what's your decision, God? And they throw the stones. We don't always pray with that expectation. We sometimes pray, well, I hope God would, would answer this. No, 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 no. We need to pray expecting an answer. Pray and look for the answer in, in prayer, in his word, in circumstances, in other godly people, in worship. Pray and expect to hear from God. <coughs> Excuse me. And the, 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 the last thing I would point out, I guess, would be that they prayed in unity with each other. You know, there is something incredibly powerful about the gathered, assembled people of God praying, especially a focused prayer. Especially when we get together and pray focused on, on something. That, it's incredibly powerful. And so I suggest join a prayer group. Join the prayer team. Come Wednesday nights. Gather up friends, family. When you have an issue, a, a decision to make, a plan to make, gather some, some Christians with you and focus on prayer. Pray focused, expecting an answer with other Christians, united in that prayer. So you see, what we make prayer out to be isn't what we see. What we see here, it's really pretty simple. It isn't about time. It is how much time you spend in it. It isn't about what words you use. It is about focus. And now we have the Holy Spirit to help us with that focus. We focus prayer and we expect an answer. Expect an answer. Don't hope for one. Expect one. God intends to answer you if you will listen. And sometimes we get so hung up in hoping to see an answer that we miss God's answer. We need to focus and we need to expect to hear from God. And we need to do it with other Christians. Gather a few friends. Gather your family. Come to a, a, a worship, or a, excuse me, a, a prayer meeting. Get a hold of the prayer team. Get folks focused and praying with you. United in prayer, of the same mind, of one accord. That's what prayer is. It's a conversation with God, expecting him to answer. It isn't throwing a wish up. It isn't something to be embarrassed about because we use the wrong words. It isn't something that we're ashamed of because we don't spend enough time in. It's a conversation with God, a focused conversation with God, expecting to hear from Him. That's what prayer is. So it's nothing we should be embarrassed or ashamed of. It's something we should enjoy. It's something that we should rejoice at the privilege we have of speaking to the one who created everything. We use it as a last resort. Well, the only thing left to do is pray. The only thing left is to take it to the creator and sustainer of everything. You see how silly that is? Pray focused. Pray united with others. Pray expecting an answer. 
I'm going to ask that you bow your heads for a moment. Have you made prayer into something it's not? Have you made it into an expectation that you can't meet? This is what prayer is. We see it here. We see it from, from guys who, who were doers, who wanted to go do stuff, who wanted to go do ministry. We see it from these guys stopping, focusing, united, expecting an answer. That's what prayer is. Can you make that your prayer life? Starting today. Father, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you for this example of how to pray, what to pray for. Forgive us when, where we have just tossed up wishes and help us by your spirit to focus on our needs, on your plans. For it's in Jesus' name we ask.